Uh, I was keen to uh, take up your invitation, notwithstanding that I recently became a father, um, uh, because it seems to me that Francis Bacon really does deserve to be considered under the rubric of crisis, extremes, and apocalypse. I might also add to Audrey's kind introduction that the work that you'll hear about today in part comes out of uh, work that I've been doing for the ongoing Oxford Francis Bacon, and in particular editing Bacon's early, perhaps the earliest surviving major philosophical treatise known as the Valerius Terminus, and the significance of that title will become clear as I go on. Well, Bacon seems to be an important figure for the themes of this seminar because, among other things, he was increasingly regarded by those who read him from the 1620s onwards as a figure who'd thrown down a decisive challenge to the knowledge of his age. And indeed, a significant proportion of his readers, not only in the 17th century, but if anything, increasingly across the 18th and 19th centuries, regarded him as having won the duel that he inaugurated with contemporary knowledge of his age. His critique of syllogistic argumentation in favour of inductive reasoning, founded upon the collection of natural histories and the performance of experiments, offered an attractive programme to a surprisingly important and varied number of later followers. At the very least, his successors found it helpful to associate their own endeavours with what they held Bacon to have done first. And the culmination of this very optimistic trajectory, uh, and I'm painting with a very broad brush here, across the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, might be held to be found in uh, J.B. Bury's book of 1920, The Idea of Progress, which decisively accorded a unique place, as he put it, to Bacon. But in a range of 20th century scholarship after Bury, the legacy of Bacon has faced a significant backlash. On the one hand, a focus in some quarters towards the history of the exact sciences found Bacon wanting, by contrast with the more mathematically inclined figures of Galileo or Kepler or perhaps Descartes. On the other hand, a countervailing post-Kuhnian turn towards the sociology of science fundamentally questioned the claim with which Bacon had become very closely associated that the natural sciences proceeded in any straightforward way in a scientific method. And since Bacon had become so closely associated with that kind of claim, his contribution too was held to have been compromised by its demolition. But other doubts that also began to be offered about what Bacon had done were even for more, more far-reaching than these ones, I think. In their Dialectique der Aufklärung, first published in New York in 1944, Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno effectively agreed with Bury about Bacon's special grasp of what they called a scientific mindset. But they were much more doubtful that this mindset had had positive consequences for the history of humanity. And the high point of this kind of scepticism about Bacon was perhaps achieved in a book published in 1980 by Carolyn Merchant, entitled The Death of Nature, Women, Ecology, and the Scientific Revolution. 
Here, Bacon found himself condemned, not for having an ineffective scientific method, but rather for having been too effective in propounding a vision of science which had come to have disastrous consequences for humanity. On Merchant's account, Bacon saw nature as a female figure who had to be subjected to torture in order to reveal her secrets. And for Merchant, moreover and above all, Baconian experimentation had ultimately led to imminent ecological catastrophe. And in fact, nothing less than, as her title expressed it, the death of nature. Well, Merchant's book was the subject of severe criticism, in fact, ongoing criticism, invariably from men, some of whom, I take the liberty of adding, are not known for their principled support of women in the academy. I'm not going to rake over here the, emblem, the embers of a debate which has been conducted on the one side with dignity and on the other side with a rather distasteful zeal on occasion. But it is important to invoke the legacy of Merchant's book because for all the parts of it make much more sense in the context of 1970s California than they do in early 17th century London, her thesis offers us the most vivid expression of the thought that there really is something at stake here. If Merchant was right, then Bacon is not only a thinker who confronted a crisis in his own age, he also contributed to the crises of our own. Well, that's a large issue, probably too large to be treated sensibly. And so my own primary goals here are more specific to the 17th century. How does the rubric of crisis, of extremes, of an apocalypse help us grasp the significance of what Bacon was trying to do? It seems to me that each of the three elements that guide this network are particularly relevant and helpful for understanding him. Firstly, I think Bacon did indeed regard his own moment as being one of crisis. And in particular, it was the knowledge of his age that he thought was in crisis. A significant proportion of his philosophical writings, then, are concerned to articulate a critique that will in some way show a way out of that crisis. The ultimate product of that process was Bacon's instauratio magna. Well, Bacon's term instauratio has been rendered in various ways, but I think it's clear from his earlier book, The Advancement of Learning, published in 1605, that he thought the English equivalent was the word renovation. This was a usefully polyvalent term for his purposes. It might imply the derivation of what he was doing from the revival of learning of the Renaissance. It might even come to hint at his interest in restoring the insights of pre-Socratic philosophy from the clutches of Platonists and, above all, of Aristotelians. And that term, renovation, perhaps also hinted, in ways that we're going to go on and discuss, at the Protestant renovation of Christian religion, and perhaps even, too, at the renovation of human nature, corrupted by the fall, that might be hoped for with the millennium. Well, the first published instalment of the Instauratio Magna was this lavish folio of 1620, which opens with the famous frontispiece of a ship sailing through the Pillars of Hercules. In antiquity, of course, the Straits of Gibraltar provided proverbially the ne plus ultra or no further of the known world. 
but to emphasize the importance of his dominions in the new world, the Emperor Charles V had shaved this ancient tag into the rallying cry of plus ultra, further, beyond. And Bacon borrowed this motto, as is well known. And of course, this visualization is a visualization of that motto. It's a visualization of the pointed question that Bacon had first asked at the beginning of book two of the 1605 Advancement of Learning. Why should a few received authors stand up like Hercules columns beyond which there should be no sailing or discovering? Now, an important way in which Bacon articulated the sense of crisis that the new organon and the instauratio magna more generally articulates was in prophetic terms. Notoriously, Bacon chose a text from the book of Daniel as the emblem of his enterprise. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. And some scholars have taken Bacon's invocation of this text to imply that he was a genuinely millennial Christian thinker. And one of my goals today is to assess the merits of that claim. But Bacon was also, I think, someone who was fascinated by the question of limits and of extremes. And so in the final part of my talk today, I'm going to offer you an argument about how that preoccupation fundamentally shaped, I think, the presentation of his ideas. And this liminal image will be at the center of what I have to say. <clears throat> well, Bacon has a very interesting and possibly wholly original interpretation of this verse that he interpreted, that he appropriated from the book of Daniel. There's an interesting question which doesn't quite seem to have been tackled by anyone about whether Tommaso Campanella also got there at the same time, uh, which I could, we could talk about in questions if you want to. But across the beginning, across from his writings from the beginning of the 17th century onwards, Bacon suggests that this verse in the book of Daniel refers, as he puts it, to the opening of the world by commerce and navigation, an opening that he says has taken place in his own and in his father's age. His point, then, is that global sea travel goes along with the kind of advancement of learning that he wanted to serve as a herald or trumpeter for. And those of you with handouts, I'm sorry, there are a few of you who don't have them, I only did 20, um, will be able to see the uh, evolution, which in some sense is a devolution, of Bacon's uh, interpretation of this verse in Daniel. And indeed, in Bacon's scholarship, his idiosyncratic interpretation of this verse has, I think, no doubt rightly, borne a great deal of interpretative weight. And in effect, two major positions have been taken about it. One view stresses the millenarian quality of this text from Daniel and seeks to emphasize the connection between Bacon and mid-17th century Baconianism and reformed or Puritan religion. And that's a view associated with Charles Webster of this university in his monumental book with its deliberately Baconian title, The Great Instauration of 1975. And early Rodri Lewis, in some sense, follows this line of interpretation as well. More recently, this kind of interpretation, although from a much more Christian and less socialist perspective, has been proposed by Stephen Matthews 
in a book that emphasizes the congruity of theology and science in Bacon's thought. Matthews thinks that Bacon left behind an early indoctrination in Calvinism uh, to turn instead to what he calls the ancient faith of the church father Irenaeus, which Matthews proposes Bacon acquired by his friendship with the scholarly English divine Lancelot Andrews. But Matthews, too, also ultimately finds Bacon's invocation of Daniel to be millenarian in orientation. The opposite position, by contrast, has recently been represented by Mordecai Feingold against his old teacher, Webster, and against the theologizers more generally. Feingold is keen, keen to stress the secular nature of what Bacon is doing. Hence, on his account, Bacon was, in fact, the first person to offer a secularized interpretation of Daniel's prophecy. For Feingold, then, Bacon openly claimed divine sanction for an unfettered investigation of nature for its own sake, without presuming the end of time or an impending millennium. But it seems to me that the situation may be both more complex and not quite so clear-cut as these opposed viewpoints suggest. And in order to explore this thought, we need to turn now to the early modern commentary tradition on the book of Daniel. Now, although there was general agreement in this period that the prophecies in the latter part of Daniel's book were important, there was also general agreement that his book was especially obscure. And this obscurity is reflected, I think, in the wide range of interpretations that were accorded to Bacon's chosen text in particular. Now, chapter 12 of Daniel was widely regarded by both Protestants and Catholics in general as a prophecy, perhaps about the resurrection and almost certainly about the destiny in some way of the afflicted church, or whether that, whether that church was Jewish or Christian was also debated. In addition, a number of commentators on this chapter, Roman Catholics particularly, such as the uh, medieval commentator Nicholas of Lyra, whose works were widely studied well into the 16th and indeed 17th centuries, and also the late 16th century uh, a co compendious commentator Benito Perea, uh, but also including the Swiss reformer Heinrich Bullinger, took the view that uh, verses in chapter 12 of Daniel specifically related to the last days when Antichrist would reign on earth. And that is the classic, as it were, millenarian interpretation of that text and that chapter. But it must be stressed that there wasn't a general consensus on that matter. And I think my friend Moti Feingold does slightly go too far in suggesting that there might have been. Not everyone straightforwardly thinks this is a prophecy about the end of days. Indeed, reformed commentators on the book of Daniel generally tended to place the time of this part of Daniel's prophecy quite deliberately at points before the apocalypse. Some commentators, such as Amandus Polanus and Andrew Willett, took it to refer to the persecution of the Jews under Antiochus in the second century before the Common Era. Other commentators, such as Franciscus Junius, took it to relate to the Christian resurrection. 
Others again, such as Calvin, saw it as a prophecy about the continuity of the church under Roman persecution. And in particular, in arguing against the Catholic commentator Perea, the English divine Andrew Willett, whose massive Daniel commentary was published in 1610, was quite definitive that uh, Daniel's prophecy did not relate to the persecution that would be undertaken under the Antichrist, but rather referred to a pre-apocalyptic period of human history. And so it seems to me that Bacon was emboldened by the variety of available interpretations to offer his own reading of this text. He first committed it to print in his book, The Advancement of Learning, as you can see here. For so the prophet Daniel, speaking of the latter times, foretelleth. Plurimi per transibunt et multiplex erit scienti. I think that's the Vulgate version. As if the openness and through passage of the world and the increase of knowledge were appointed to be in the same age. Ages, I'm sorry. The plural is important. So Bacon is associating global navigation, as I've said, with the advancement of learning. But one of his early readers was not persuaded by the obviousness of this interpretation. The Dutch scholar Isaac Dorislaus, who had served extremely controversially as the University of Cambridge's first reader in history in 1627, observed in a copy of his, his copy of The Advancement of Learning, uh, he writes in the margin directly next to the, the prophecy, uh, Apros Dionusion, this has nothing to do with Dionysius. <laughs> as Anthony Grafton spotted, uh, i.e. Doris Laus doesn't believe a word of what Bacon is doing here. So there really is something at stake. Nonetheless, Bacon becomes increasingly confident about his interpretation as his life goes on. In the treatise generally known, though mistakenly, as the refutation of philosophies that he wrote about 1608 or 1609, he described it as plain enough. While in the Novum Organum of 1620, he asserted that Daniel's text clearly hinted or nodded and signified his reading. But the fullest and most revealing version of Bacon's interpretation is his earliest one. It comes in the unfinished and unpublished manuscript treatise entitled Valerius Terminus of the Interpretation of Nature, the latest version of which seems to date from around 1603, and which I'm editing for the Oxford Francis Bacon. It's not violent to the letter, Bacon says, about his interpretation. And he adds, it's safe now after the event to interpret that place in the prophecy of Daniel where, speaking of the latter times, it is said, many shall pass to and fro and science shall be increased. As if, as if the opening of the world by navigation and commerce and the further discovery of knowledge should meet in one time or age. And as you can see, if you have the handout ahead of you, in front of you, the later versions of this interpretation actually leave out those qualifications with which he had first hedged about his interpretation. Uh, 
the caution about the, whether he's doing violence to the letter and the circumspect assertion that it's safe for him to offer this prophecy now that the events to which it relates are in the past. But these qualifications are important, I think, if we're to assess precisely the nature of or extent of Bacon's millenarianism. I don't think we should necessarily be misled by his references to the end times, novissimi tempora, in the refutation of philosophies, or to the last ages of the world, the ultima tempora mundi, in the new organon, into assuming that this claim is, as it were, apocalyptic. The equivalent season, after all, in the Valerius Terminus, is the autumn of the world, not the winter yet. And it was, of course, perfectly orthodox theology to regard the age following Christ in general as being the last age of the world. Moreover, Bacon, as we've seen, speaks of it being safe to interpret the prophecy by virtue of it having been already accomplished. And so I don't think that Bacon's use of Daniel quite implies that his millennium is imminent. And so it's possible that by arguing over whether his use of Daniel 12.4 is or isn't millenarian, we may be missing a point. It is indeed, surely, a religious prophecy about the last ages in the plural of the world, and therefore surely a less secular announcement perhaps than uh, Feingold might like it to be. But my thought is that these ages might last for a long time. And so on that account, Bacon's vision of the increase of knowledge is not a prelude to any imminent end of the world. In other words, I don't think that Bacon is implying that his advancement of learning will bring about the end of history, though he may possibly be hinting that it has its own kind of power to redeem us. Well, so much for themes of apocalypse. What about extremes? Here I want to take you away from established questions about the significance of Bacon's enterprise and try to open up a new one. But again, my starting point is a very familiar one, the frontispiece of the 1620 Great Instauration. This image, I think, is precisely an image of extremes. The pillars of Hercules were the proverbial extremity of the ancient world. And the point about the instauration is that it goes beyond them. But the thought I want to offer you today is that this pair of columns was not the image that Bacon originally chose to symbolize his limit-testing vision of human knowledge. He took a journey to get to this image, and I want now to recreate that journey for us. Bacon's chaplain and editor, William Rawley, reported after his master's death that he had seen at least 12 different versions of Bacon's Instauratio Magna before the version that was printed in 1620. And they were, said Rawley, revised year by year, one after another, and every year altered and amended in the frame thereof. Well, splendidly for Bacon scholars, several of these different versions have flowed down the river of time to reach us. 
They include this one, the so-called refutation of philosophies. I mean, the reason I say it's so cool, by the way, is that the handwriting in which the title is written doesn't seem to me to be contemporary. Uh, this document, I think, may be the earliest version of Bacon's project where he actually uses the term instauratio, and it probably dates from around 1608 to 9. Before this came the cogitata et visa, the thoughts and conclusions, which Bacon sent uh, to Sir Thomas Bodley for his comments and received back a very long and polite letter expressing basically disbelief in what Bacon was trying to do and also pointing out that his Latinity would not pass for current in the schools. But the earliest of the surviving uh, recensions of what becomes the great instauration is the one that we've met already, this unfinished English manuscript treatise with the pseudonymous title, Valerius Terminus of the Interpretation of Nature. Apparently written in, or at least we should perhaps say copied and then abandoned in 1603 or thereabouts, possibly early 1603. I mean, the abandonment may be a consequence of the accession of King James. Uh, this is the fullest surviving version. There's another version, a user copy in a notebook made by a student at Oxford uh, on, in or after 1607. But this is the fullest surviving version. Um, a manuscript copied by one of Bacon's scribes, who he used to copy his letters at the same time, and with numerous revisions and additions in Bacon's own hand. Well, this bold and important work raises the hope, as Bacon says, of discovering all operations and possibilities of operations from immortality if it were possible, Bacon cautiously adds, to what he calls the meanest mechanical practice. But before Bacon could explain how he might achieve the planned endowment of man's life with new commodities that this command of operations would bring about, he first needed to clear the ground. And this is a very ground-clearing work. He needed, as he says in chapter one of it, to lay out the limits or end, that is, the, the goal of knowledge. That's the purpose and also the title of the first chapter of Valerius Terminus, which is actually the only part of it that exists in finished form. And the primary <coughs> function of that chapter is to establish the ways in which knowledge is to be, as Bacon puts it, limited by religion while also obeying his insistence that knowledge be referred to use and action. And above all, the point I want to make is that Bacon's preoccupation in this opening chapter with the limits and end of knowledge is crucial if we're to understand the significance of a work apparently written by an author with the name Terminus. Because the Valerius Terminus stands out among Bacon's unpublished natural philosophical writings for his use of a pseudonym to conceal his authorship. Now, of course, pseudonymous authorship was widespread in the late 16th century. It was used, among others, by religious controversialists such as Martin Marprelate, 
by spies, such as uh, Francis Bacon's brother Anthony's many correspondents, by poets, such as Philip Sidney, and of course also by the alchemists that Bacon professed to despise. But what does Bacon's pseudonym mean? Well, Stephen Matthews offers an ingeniously millenarian interpretation of the name. Noting the derivation of Valerius from the Latin verb valere, uh, to be strong, he suggests that Bacon's instauration was intended to bring about a strong ending. But let's not forget, by the way, as Matthews, I'm afraid, does forget, that at this point in life, as we've seen, Bacon hadn't begun to conceive of what he was doing in terms of an instauration. And so I think there are other possibilities that we might also invoke in trying to understand the range of meanings of this name, Valerius Terminus. Let's start with Valerius. As Bacon well knew from his very deep familiarity with the early books of Livy's Ab Urbe Condita, not to mention his equally deep familiarity with Machiavelli's Discorsi, the early Roman senator Publius Valerius was a prominent figure in the history of Roman liberty, who served several times as consul and, most tellingly of all, I think, was accorded the cognomen of Publicola, friend of the people, for his part in the actions of ejecting the tyranny of the Tarquin kings. Well, this beneficent implication of the name Valerius sits interestingly, I think, with Bacon's long-standing preoccupation with turning his philosophy to the public good. For instance, in a famous letter of 1592 to uh, Lord Burley, he wrote that he had as the motive for his uh, vast contemplative ends, as he put it, not curiosity or vainglory, but rather philanthropia, a love for humankind. So I wonder if it's possible that Bacon intended his use of the name Valerius to hint that a treatise which promised the endowment of man's life with new commodities had indeed been written by a second such friend of mankind. But what about the name Terminus? Well, clearly its significance must be connected with the meaning of the Latin term Terminus as boundary, limit, or end. And by extension, too, the Roman god of borders was known as Terminus. The ancient and patristic authorities that 16th century scholars such as Giulio Giraldo recorded uh, about Terminus noted that he was a uniquely stubborn deity. And Livy, in particular, regarded the god Terminus's refusal to be displaced from the Capitoline as a divine token of the perpetuity of the city of Rome. Particularly notable, though, I think, is Plutarch's account of the deity Terminus in his treatise known as the Roman Questions. Plutarch notes that whereas Romulus had appointed no bounds or limits of his country, Romulus's successor as king of Rome, Numa Pompilius, instead set up Terminus as the superintendent of the Romans' borders and decreed that no blood should be shed in his worship. Well, in the 16th century, 
the person most closely associated with the god Terminus was Desiderius, Erat Desiderius Erasmus, who from 1509 onwards appropriated the youthful god and his motto, Concedi Nulli, I yield to no one, as his emblem. Yet as Edgar Wint elegantly explained in 1937, Erasmus's identification with Terminus underwent a curious shift across his lifetime. Because when the aged Erasmus was confronted by his enemies at the court of Charles V with the charge that his appropriation of Terminus's motto demonstrated his intransigent arrogance, Erasmus now claimed that Terminus was simply an emblem of mortality. For death, as he said, is the true terminus which gives way to no one. Well, one of Erasmus's Spanish enemies was the Franciscan Luis de Carvajal, who, to Erasmus's great annoyance, went so far as to connect the proverbial concedo nulli of terminus with the emperor's motto, plus ultra, further beyond. And across the 16th century, there developed a broadly Christianized reading of the pagan deity Terminus as a figure of death, therefore. That's the interpretation emphasized in Andrea Alciato's immensely popular emblem book, of which this is a latish edition. For Alciato, Terminus is the ultimate goal of human life, who stands before the last day and signifies death. Alciato's vision of Terminus is also the one that was taken up in the penultimate lozenge of the rich emblematic frontispiece of the philosophical touchstone of the Oxford philosopher and physician John Case, published posthumously probably a couple of years after his death. And here too, in Case's commentary on Aristotle's physics, the figure of Terminus marks the limits of infinity and stands on the threshold of death, because that is Case's dead body next to him. Well, as these instances suggest, Terminus also had a rich graphic and architectural existence in the latter part of the 16th century. The term, a figure atop a column, or latterly serving as the column itself, became a staple of Mannerist architecture ornamenting chimney pieces, doorways, furniture, and chests in particular. Terms acquired their own orders, the Tuscan, Corinthian, Ionic, and they might even, as here, depict animals, such as bears or boars, as well as women, men, and gods. And so I think one way of thinking about Bacon's invocation of this pseudonym, Valerius Terminus, is to think of it as participating in this mannerist and playful cultural world. Moreover, as one reads chapter one of the treatise, it soon becomes apparent that Terminus, as I've suggested, is a very appropriate pseudonym for the author of a treatise that's concerned with exploring the limits and end of knowledge. And so I think that the pseudonym invokes, in short, a benefactor of humankind who will mark out the true limits and goals of human knowledge on earth, who will advance human good without shedding blood on the way, and who may be even, and here we invoke Bacon's 
fascination with immortality, which is present even in his uh, 30s when he writes the Valerius Terminus, uh, invoke Bacon's fascination with the possibility of the extension of human life. And is there finally the immodest hint in Bacon's pseudonym that by invoking in it Erasmus's famous tutelary deity, Bacon is presenting himself as a successor and possibly even a supersessor of that protean intellectual figure. So you can see, I hope, where my argument is going. I'm pretty sure that if Bacon had finished and published the Valerius Terminus, it would have had a frontispiece that had Terminus on a pillar on the front of it, just as we've seen John Case did. But of course, this particular emblem of the limits of knowledge wasn't how Bacon eventually presented his great installation to the public. Instead, he designed the famous image that's become even more expressive of his mature vision, an image that no longer contains a single pillar, but rather two. Uh, sorry, I've jumped the gun. Now, the, she the seeds of this shift are already apparent, I think, in the advancement of learning, which is only a couple of years after Bacon abandons the Valerius Terminus. It's here that, for the first time, Bacon invokes the Habsburg Emperor Charles V's confected motto, plus ultra, with its double implication of both limit and ambition to characterize the times in which he lived. And it's this vision that would ultimately give rise to the famous image of the ship returning from the new world to the old that Bacon commissioned from the well-connected court engraver Simon de Passe to illustrate his lavish folio Instauratio Magna of 1620 to the world. That image is also the image of a boundary, but now the trans-navigated pillars of Hercules, the ne plus ultra of an older world, have replaced the unyielding terminus as the emblem of Bacon's endeavors. <coughs> possible that Bacon's change of mind in this matter did arise from hints that were offered to him by Erasmus's quarrel with Caroyal about the propriety of connecting Terminus's motto concedo nulli with Charles V's plus ultra. Because the quarrel was well known, it was in Erasmus's printed correspondence, but it was also in books like this, Claude Parada, uh, in his Divise Héroïque, uh, first published in 1551 and also translated into English in 1591. Parada explains here how Carvajal had taken Erasmus to task for using Terminus as his symbol, suggesting that it implied that he would give way to no one on a point of learning, but that he had ultimately been satisfied by Erasmus's answer that what Terminus in fact signified was death, the utmost bound or limit of all things. But Terminus isn't the only emblem in Paranath's work that might have caught Bacon's eye, because from the second edition of 1557 onwards, we also find Charles V's plus ultra depicted among his heroic devices. <clears throat> 
But my argument doesn't depend on Bacon having read any one of these particular books. The larger point, I think, is the significance of the movement that he made from the heroic name of Valerius Terminus to a new organon. In shifting from Terminus to the Pillars of Hercules, Bacon was also, quite deliberately, I think, making a voyage from the ancient world to a new world, from the humanistic world of Erasmus's Europe to the more mar self-consciously maritime and commercial globe of the later 16th century. No longer was the emblem of his studies an unyielding ancient deity. Now the emblem is a visual representation of this global world that he was conscious he inhabited. And so as Bacon's sense of what he wanted to do with his preoccupation with the limits and impediments of knowledge, a theme that is more prominent in the Valerius Terminus than in later writings, as he shifted from that view to a view that stressed advancement and renovation, so too the imagery by which he conceived it also changed. <clears throat> Well, I draw to a close. We've seen that the present generation of Bacon scholarship has been arguing over whether Bacon's vision was millenarian or progressive, religious or secular. And a certain tendency in my field for Christian apologetic to appear in the form of historical scholarship continues to make this a question worth debating. But as I draw to a close, I'm also conscious that I haven't given you an answer to the larger question raised by Carolyn Merchant of whether Bacon's vision of crisis in early modern knowledge sowed the seeds for the environmental catastrophe that we are currently living through. At one level, of course, the assignation of blame to Bacon is absurd. It was only in the middle of the 18th century that carbon dioxide levels began to rise for man-made reasons. It's in the course of my lifetime, not of Francis Bacon's, that 40-40% of global species have become extinct. Moreover, to the old charge that Bacon didn't grasp the significance that mathematics would come to possess for physics in his age, we might now also add the observation that he doesn't seem to have been especially interested in the possibilities offered by combustion for the production of energy. And I wrote that conclusion as I was passing through Didcot Power Station <laughs> in a diesel-electric locomotive. Yet I do think that there is something about the originality and the clarity of Bacon's vision that the vexation of nature might offer unlimited scope for human improvement that continues to make Merchant's claim an intriguing one, however second-hand some of her evidence was. Bacon's vision of the possibility of active knowledge to perform all operations possible, uh, of which he gave us the most vivid representation in his utopian treatise, The New Atlantis, that's a vision which has become increasingly recognisable in the 21st century. 
And so, as the threat of our own potential ecological termination grows even more real than it was in late 1970s California, although I gather the smog was terrible, it may be worth continuing to reflect on the implications of Bacon's decision to shift his vision from Terminus to the Pillars of Hercules, and thereby away from an ancient image that emphasized the limits of knowledge and towards a prophetic image that emphasized its lack of constraint. Thank you.